Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, my name is Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. This week, we interview Associate Vice President for Diversity, Lamont Sellers. Lamont has been at USD since 2012, initially helping establish the Center for Diversity and Community. In our conversation, we discuss how USD uses a practice called inclusive excellence to empower its students, staff, and faculty. Lamont, how's it going today? Going well. Enjoying spring. (laughs) Yes. Now, you are the Associate Vice President for Diversity. What does this role entail? It really entails a lot. Um, Looking at diversity and inclusiveness for the entire institution, my primary role is to serve as a consultant and advisor to the president and vice presidents on issues of diversity and inclusiveness. Uh, From that, there are the programming and events and the day-to-day issues that we deal with on a daily basis for the institution, uh, looking at policies, procedures, meeting with various departments to talk about uh, curricular issues, um, issues of hiring, staffing, the whole nine yards. So there really isn't a part of the university that my role doesn't touch. No, and and you said that you were here or you've been here for about four academic calendar years, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, You first came on just as the director of the Center of of diversity and community, um, you kind of help establish that center at USD. What is the Center for Diversity and Community? What role does it play on campus? Okay, so um, there was a proposal that was put forward by the previous associate vice president uh, for diversity, Jesus Trevino. Um, He and Dr. Kim Grieve got together and wrote a proposal for establishing a multicultural student center on campus. Um, They got the funding for it and were able to find space for it on the second floor of the muck and launched a search for launched a national search for a director. I at the time was at um, Regent University in Virginia and had been looking for Jesus and found him here at the University of South Dakota and was looking at job postings and that one popped up and it was uniquely um familiar in that it was based off of a role that I had with Jesus at the University of Denver. Um, the center really is a it's a it has a dual mission as a multicultural student center, but also as an intergroup relations center. So it addresses the needs of um, students of color and other marginalized populations. But then it also pays attention to majority students and their educational and enrichment needs as well for interacting with diverse um, students in uh, getting cultural programming, cultural competence, um, diversity and social justice training, um, information and ways of becoming an ally or an advocate, those types of things. You know, uh, how long has the the, um, center then been at USD? Is it a full four years then? Yeah, as long as I've been here, yeah. What kind of impact has it had here at USD? Uh, It's had a significant impact, especially on our student body. Um, It has led to uh, the Student Government Association, SGA, really um, buckling down and looking at how they can 
further support students of color and other marginalized populations, but also it's uh, filled a gap in the university for helping to um, do three things. And the three things that I uh, really worked to do was to, number one, support our students of color and marginalized students. There are things that they uniquely need as students um, to feel welcome, to have a place, to give vent to their gifts, talents, and abilities. But then also there is the um, part of it that we celebrate. So there are various celebrations that happen throughout the year where we're celebrating Eid and Diwali and Passover Seder and all types of things to engage not only the students that come from those backgrounds, but also to uh, enrich the lives of those that don't in being able to experience something they wouldn't usually experience. And then the third part of that is education, Um, being able to educate not only our students of color and marginalized populations, but also our majority students in being able to give them information and lead them in trainings and opportunities to learn about things other than where they have come from. You know, you have served in a you know, variety of advisory roles, I think, at other universities. You mentioned your experience at Regent University in Virginia, um, University of Denver. I'm curious what drew you to you know, this field of, of, uh, of interest, of education, of you know, this focus on, on diversity. Um, was it something that you always wanted to do or was it something that you kind of learned as you went through your own educational process? Right. Um, there, it was some years ago, I remember listening to an interview and somebody said, it was on Oprah Winfrey, and um, they said that whatever you played when you were a kid is probably your passion area or something that you really want to do. Well, education was always a part of what I played because <laughs> I was an old kid. <laughs> I played teacher, I played principal, those kinds of things. And education was just a part of who I am. So when I went to, I went to Shaw University uh, for my bachelor's degree, a historically black institution in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I um, was mentored into uh, getting my major, my degree in secondary mathematics education. After graduating, I went and taught in Northern Virginia, um, outside of Washington, D.C. in Prince William County uh, at C.D. Hilton Senior High School, and I taught high school math, um, algebraic concepts, integrated algebra and geometry, and algebra one. And while I was in my second year of teaching, the director of the Office for Multicultural Affairs in the county um, sought me out and was like, hey, we're getting ready to start up these diversity trainings. Would you be interested in being one of our trainers? I'm like, yeah, sure. So um, I signed up, uh, went through the train the trainer um, program and ended up becoming one of the diversity trainers in the county. There was a mandate from our superintendent at that point to train every single faculty and staff member in the county. Uh, we're talking over 100 schools, I think it was probably close to 2,000 faculty and staff. Um, And over the course of one academic year, I did about 100 hours of trainings across the county. Um, When I decided to grow up and get a master's degree, I went to the University of Denver and got my master's in higher education administration. But I started off as a graduate assistant in the Center for Multicultural Excellence at um, DU. That's where I met um, Dr. Trevino, and he mentored me and helped me along um, this 
diversity and social justice route. I continue to do trainings, continue to um, advise student groups and all of that kind of thing, and went from graduate assistant to programming coordinator to assistant director to finally associate director by the time I left there. Um, when I left Denver, we moved to um, Pennsylvania, and I was at Misericordia University. Um, it was really for a short stint, um, but I did learn a lot in that short period of time. Um, it was for the Northeastern Pennsylvania Diversity Education Consortium. <laughs> I was the director of NEPDEC, that's what it was called. And um, the role really was more so out in the community than it was on campus. And um, I had a, got a great experience with being um, co-chair of the Luzerne County um, Diversity Task Force and working with the NAACP in Wilkes-Barre and a whole host of other things before we left there and moved to Virginia, where I was a senior academic advisor at Regent University before coming here. You've kind of previously said, you know, with a lot of the, the programs that focus on diversity at USD, you know, a lot of it is for um, providing resources, um, kind of elevating the needs of underrepresented groups at USD. But you also talk about the majority population as well. I, I think it goes back to something that we like to call inclusive excellence at USD. Um, can you just tell us maybe what a definition of inclusive excellence is and its history here at USD? So inclusive excellence is actually um, something that I've worked with since its inception by uh, AAC and you, the American Association of Colleges and Universities um, developed a series of three um, papers that um, they assembled uh, faculty and researchers from all over the country um, that were tops in their field um, of higher education, diversity, um, diversity in the curriculum, those types of things. And the out of these three papers that were generated was this idea of inclusive excellence, that in order for us to be an excellent institution, we have to be an inclusive institution. So um, Damon Williams and Jeff Milam and um Alma Clayton Pedersen and other and Sylvia Hurtado and others um, have written around this topic for quite some time now, going back to those early papers that were written in 2005. Um, but it moves us away from a myopic view of diversity as simply race and ethnicity to expanding that definition of diversity to encompass many, many more uh, social uh, social dimensions and identities that we all have have. Um, and it pays attention to veteran status, disability status, uh, socioeconomic status, gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity is a part of that, but it's so much more. Um, and in paying attention to these things, we have uh, arrived at this point because the university adopted it as an organizing principle in uh, 2012. And since then, the President's Council on Diversity and Inclusiveness, um, my office, the Office for Diversity, the President's Office, the Provost's Office, has been working in a concerted effort to help to embed diversity and inclusion into the very fabric of who we are as an institution so that we can be that inclusive, excellent institution that 
those papers talk about. I think that's really interesting, this sort of holistic nature of this approach. And, and some of the you know, research that you gave me on background, it, it kind of talks about the silo effect with diversity efforts, that occasionally, you know, the, one academic program may be doing a diversity effort, another, um, you know, academic program may be doing something completely different. But if they don't sort of meet in the middle and support each other, you're kind of missing um, a, a key element. How does USD uh, strategically try to support diversity efforts on campus? So that happens in a whole host of different ways. Um, and really it is bringing all of those characters to the table uh, to talk about and grapple with these things in a concerted way. So the President's Council on Diversity and Inclusiveness is a perfect example of that as it's a high level presidential appointment to this uh, council. And we have representatives from every single one of our colleges and schools across campus, our major divisions across campus, um, which include uh, HR, student services, um, enrollment and marketing. Uh, there are some that have um, ex officio permanent positions on the uh, council, which mine is one of those. Um, the director of communications, the um, director or vice president of human resources, um, and several others. But having all of these people around the table at one time really does enrich the conversation around these things, and we're able to connect in ways that we haven't previously. So as Fine Arts, um, last year when Fine Arts um, did the... Um, the programming around the green violin and talking about um, Jewish and Yiddish culture here on campus. Um, there were various other departments from around our campus that came together to really make that entire week that we were talking about these topics really come alive in a whole host of different ways. Um, likewise, we have started to have campus-wide themes. So this past year's theme was on privilege. This coming year's theme is becoming an ally and advocate. Um, and we're looking for people to coalesce around these themes and come up with their ways of being able to address it, whether it's the nursing program, whether it's um, the theater program, whether it's um, facilities management, whomever it is, being able to coalesce around the singular theme and look at it from their particular vantage point. It really does go to that holistic view and pulling us out of our silos. And then additionally, the funds and resources are limited on campus. So as much as we can pool these things together, it helps to that experience. You, you said this year's theme was privilege. Um, you gave a TED Talk pretty recently about the, about the topic of privilege. I don't know if you can just tell us maybe what are some issues that deal with the concept of privilege that you know people may have to wrestle with themselves or, or may be uncomfortable with? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that that comes up almost immediately for people when we talk about privilege. White privilege has been the one that's been in the news. It's been all over the place. And there are many people that deny this privilege even operates or works. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that there are all types of um, oppressed because it's difficult to talk about privilege without talking about
about oppression. So there are these oppressed identities or these suppressed identities that we have within in everyone. Um, you might be a white male and be able to enjoy some of the privileges of being white in this country, but at the same time come from a low socioeconomic background where you didn't have access to the same things that somebody else from middle class or upper class had. So these things are intersectional in nature and we have to pay attention to those things. And then we also have to pay attention to the fact that in our country, in our society, in our institutions, there are disproportionate amounts of people that are affected in different ways. So as we begin to tease out and look at these various things, we'll begin to notice that female faculty members don't enjoy the same privileges that male faculty members do. There are certain assumptions and um, myths that revolve around female faculty of color if we start to intersect those things. And it compounds the issues that they end up um, having to in, uh, live with and endure. So, you know, this concept of privilege, while there are those that work actively to say that it doesn't exist, there are things that we do enjoy that it's just a part of who we are and how our society is set up. Yes, I'm African-American and that can be seen as a, um, an, a, as an oppressed identity, but I'm middle class. I came from a two parent household, um, very stable home environment. I'm Christian. I'm heterosexual. These are all privileged identities that I have. And I recognize that my um, LGBT brothers and sisters don't enjoy the same things that I do as a heterosexual. You said earlier that for an institution to be excellent, it has to be inclusive. What do you mean by that? So... I struggle to find any institution across our country that is not striving for excellence, um, excellence in academics, excellence in athletics, ex excellence in their facilities. You name it, they're going after excellence. We want to have the best. We want to have the greatest. Um, and as we start to look at those things for our institution in particular, we have to start to look at the fact that if we are going to be excellent, we really do have to be inclusive. So take, for instance, our facilities. If we're going to have excellent facilities, then everyone should be able to access and be able to enjoy the facilities regardless of anything they may be coming to us with. So whether they may have a, be completely able-bodied or they may have a temporary disability or it may be a more permanent disability, um, whether they're visually impaired or may have to use um, some type of aid, crutches or a wheelchair, they should still be able to enjoy our facilities. And if we're striving for this excellence, then everybody has to be able to access it. Um, if we're looking at our curriculum and we want to have the best curriculum that we can and strive for excellence, then it has to include not only the traditional canon of works that we all have uh, grown up with and gravitated to, but we also have to bring in others into that canon to start to look at what else is there.
You know, you were quoted in a recent Yankton Press and Dakota article as saying that inclusive excellence deputizes everybody on campus to be paying attention to these things in their own ways. What do you mean by that statement? So one of the aspects of inclusive excellence that I really enjoy is the fact that it moves it from being the singular focus of an individual or an office on campus to really becoming the responsibility of everyone on campus to pay attention to these things. So it's not just my office or it's not just me and my role um, saying, well, you know, we're, we need to look at the disproportionate number of students of color that aren't passing this particular course or the, um, the, re- the graduation gap between uh, white students and students of color. It's not just me that should be looking at and paying attention to these things. It's department chairs that are looking at the same data and saying, what's going on in my particular program? It's our um, other data analysts across the campus that are looking at wage disparities between um, males and females across campus. It's our um, promotion and tenure committee that's looking at whether or not our um, faculty of color or female faculty are being tenured or promoted at the same rates that other populations are. So it moves us to start to look at these things from all over campus because I can't be everywhere all the time. (laughs) Kind of wish I could, but I can't. So in that I need the help. Our campus needs the help of everyone paying attention to these things. So everyone is basically deputized as a diversity officer in their own sphere of influence and area to be paying attention to what things are actually happening and going on. And I think that's that's really interesting, this concept that it's sort of everybody's responsibility. You know, you talked about next year's you know theme. Are there any specific events related uh, um, to that that? that have already been you know planned i know it's just the beginning of the yeah. summer so um we're looking for people to to come and you know say hey we we want to do this we want to do that and we're all on board with helping to promote and um help to find funding and whatever it is they need as support but um out of my office um we have what's called talking change making change which is a critical dialogue and action program that um we have it's kind of been modified as our um, Voices of Discovery intergroup dialogue program that we had um, a few years ago. And in this program, we're going to be having conversations with groups of students around various issues of being an ally and an advocate, Um, really looking at who are the allies and advocates and looking at particular populations so that, you know, as we start to talk about that, you know, as an African-American male, I can be an advocate for other African-American males, but I invite you to do your part in helping us along the way and be an ally to our group. Um, Just as I strive to be, I don't believe you ever truly become an ally. Uh, You're always becoming um, because there's more that needs to be learned. There's more that needs to be done. But what does that mean and how can I go about helping from my privileged identities? How can I go about helping from my place and my position. Um, But Talking Change, Making Change is one of the programs that we have on uh, on deck for this, uh, for this coming year. 
at an institutional level, in your experience, what are the biggest roadblocks or challenges maybe that um, organizations run into when, when they're trying to, you know, support diversity efforts? Um, for a lot of institutions, there's this sense of complacency. We have your position, so we're good. Um, or, you know, well, we have we have all of these celebrations and events. You know, we're good. Um, but it's not enough. We need to really be paying attention to who is actually succeeding at our institution, who is struggling at our institution, and that's faculty, staff, and students. Um, and as we begin to look at these things, we can't become complacent and say, and it's never a checkbox that says, oh, well, we did that, we're done. Um, even as we look at um, this past year, the President's Council on Diversity and Inclusiveness worked with uh, Dr. Grieve in student services and there was money made available to change the bathroom signage for single stall restrooms in um, various areas of campus um, under student services to be able to be gender inclusive. That's paying attention to what's going on in our environment and for our faculty, staff and students. Now, we can we can check that one off that we got those signs done, but there are many other buildings across campus that need to be um, addressed. But then there are also other issues for our for our LGBT community, as well as others that need to be addressed right along with that. You know, I know it's generally you think of young people as as maybe being a little um, I don't know what the right way to phrase it is socially aware maybe and I think that's probably true of any any generation of young people but particularly this generation I mean I think about my own experience at USD I graduated um, I went to school I should say from 2006 to 2010 I graduated a little bit later Um, but I I think back on it and I just I don't remember you know there being as many activities there being as much support is there something particular about this generation um, you know, of college student or young person that is more socially aware than, than previous generations? I struggle with that um, partly because we are now in a generation where we have a 24-hour news cycle um, that's 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, but also social media has exploded the amount of information that we have available to us at any given point. So I think that and the students that are coming to campus now, um, if you look at the um, Beloit College um, list of mindsets that comes out every year, um, a few years back was the first set of students coming into college that had have always had computers at home. They've always had access to computers and laptops at home. We also have a generation on our campus now that have always had smartphones. So we have students arriving on campus that have always had access to information in the palm of their hand. This is very different from my generation and previous generations, because I'm actually a Gen Xer, you know, we didn't have those things. I was good to have an Atari 2600. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think that's one of the big differences. The other thing that I will say is that um, I was intrigued 
back in um, March and going into April as we were coming up on the 50th um, anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And the conversation that came out around who it was that was protesting, who it was that were on the front lines and the same age groups that were on the front lines, those college and high school students that were on the front lines 50 years ago are the same students that we're finding today that are on the front lines that are saying, no, we don't want these guns in our schools. We're tired of being gunned down in our high schools. We're going to stand up and say something about it. These are the same students that are protesting across the country at various institutions on sexual harassment and rape issues, as well as gender disparities, um, the, the things that have come up with students of color and all of this. We're seeing those same things. Um, And I think part of that, again, plays into the fact that we have access to a lot more information than we ever have had before. So it's not that these things weren't going on before. We have access to the information now also. You know, how difficult is it maybe to operate in this environment when occasionally and and sometimes necessarily so there's a political dimension to it, right? Mm -hmm. How do you grapple with that, you know, working in a public institution? Um... It does present some challenges, but I also look at the opportunities um, because I have I've gotten through reading uh, like the Volant and um, through reading comments that come back on like our campus climate survey or other things. I hear these rumblings of um, conservatives on campus that say, well, we don't have a voice in this liberal society, in this liberal institution. We don't have a voice. And I struggle with the fact that with our inclusive with inclusive excellence being our model and wanting to engage all people from across campus, I want to hear those voices also. I don't just want to see them when it comes to um, surveys or comment cards or anything like that. I genuinely want to engage with those voices on campus also, because if we're in a learning environment, I want to learn also. So I want to learn what it is that brings you to um, your thought processes and how you address things and how you see things from your particular world worldview. I might not share that same worldview, but I think it adds to the conversations that we should be having on our campus. And I'm really looking for ways to engage those voices and bring that to the conversation to help enrich it because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't do any good for us just to preach to the choir all the time. We do need to hear those others that are in the in our space, in our audience. No, I know that's what I love working about, you know, at USD is just the liberal arts, you know, academic environment. You get to, I think, learn and discover and be curious about so many different things, whether that's, you know, the latest research on post-traumatic stress disorder or political science, trade wars. I mean, that's what we've discovered even with this podcast. I mean, there are just so many, you know, incredible people doing so many different and wonderful things here. And it's fun. It's fun to explore. And I think that's what's 
really cool about a lot of the you know efforts that you talked about, some of the programming, the cultural programming that happens on campus with you know, activities like the Festival of Nations um, or some of the specific um, you know holidays that, that you know your office has supported. Is that it really just kind of exposes people to this different culture in it, and it's you know not just uh, something you might read in a textbook, but you can actually go try their food or see what their you know dances are like and, and go experience you know that sort of life on its own terms. And that's what I like. I said it's just it's what's awesome about being here at USD. Um, you, know, you mentioned Oprah a little bit earlier, and so mm-hmm. I'm glad you kind of segued <laughs> in for me because I, I love asking this question um, to some of our guests that come on. And you know, you've had, I think, a really interesting career. You, you started out as a math teacher in you know, secondary education. Um, you kind of grew, I think, into this role as a trainer, um, have gained a lot of expertise, obviously, in issues like inclusive excellence. You know, at this point in your career, um, you're in a leader posi- leadership position here at USD. Um, and people, I think, look to you, you know, for a lot of guidance on what are often sensitive subjects. At this point, what do you know for sure? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um Things are always changing. Um, And I I say absolutely nothing tongue in cheek, but the truth of the matter is um, what I thought and what I thought that I knew about the LGBT community 10 years ago, 15 years ago, doesn't quite hold true anymore. Things that um, that perceptions that I had of students that come from at, from the African continent and various countries, I don't have those same things anymore. Um, so, being that we are in a learning environment, I think I'm always evolving. My my thought processes, my um, way of doing things, all of that is continuing to evolve. Um, I'm committed to being a lifelong learner. That I know. Um, but when it comes to, um, you know, my quote unquote expertise, um, I, I tell a lot of people I know enough to be dangerous at times. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and honestly, I lean on colleagues from around campus and also colleagues from around the country um, to help me grapple with some of the things that come up and that I deal with. Um Just for instance, I um, got a call from our um, office of research uh, earlier in the semester, and they were grappling with some questions about how to ask gender identity questions for adolescents. I was like, that's nothing I've ever gotten before. But the part I love about my job is no two days are ever the same. So I I dove into literature and readings on how to ask gender questions on surveys and instruments um, and learned a lot about it and help them to figure out what was the best way to go about doing it. And, you know, I, I don't call myself an expert in it, but I was able to find the information, help them along the way. And then, you know, I'll continue to look for better ways to do it now that I know this is something that we're grappling with. Lamont, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Next week, we interview USD Assistant Professor Lindsay Jorgensen about how post-traumatic stress disorder interacts with hearing loss. Until next time, go Yotes.